Well, I want you to take your Bibles out and turn to the book of Judges. And at the end of this message, we're going to uh, sing together, and then we'll have some uh, folks to present, uh, some new folks that came through Sherwood's story today. And so um, we have one more chance to sing together. So, Mark, I'm giving you a heads up. Yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate that, don't you? Um, I, I want us to look at, uh, I have a uh, cough drop in my mouth because I've got this South Georgia sinus thing going. I'm, I remember one time when Ron Dunn was here, he said, you know, I have this mint in my mouth because my throat gets dry, and if it gets dry, I start coughing. He said, in the church not long ago, I accidentally put a spare button in my mouth, and I, <laughs> he said, usually a mint tells me I can go for about 45 minutes, and he said, about an hour and 20 minutes later, I'm wondering why that mint had melted. So if this one goes long, it's, it's not a cough drop, it's a button. Uh, I want us to talk about Jephthah, uh, the danger of an unprayed-over decision. In 1863, Abraham Lincoln issued a proclamation entitled, A Proclamation Appointing a National Fast Day. He believed that the Civil War was a chastisement from God for the sins of the nation. In that proclamation, he said this, we have been the recipients of the choicest blessings, blessed bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown, but we have forgotten God. Could that not be said about us today? It was certainly true of the time of the judges. Blessed in covenant with God, God's protection and intervention, God's deliverance from their enemies, and yet time and time again they keep forsaking Him. So I want us to look at the rebellion in the land. Between Gideon and Abimelech, you find two other what you would call minor judges. And there's a sevenfold idolatry that picks up in Judges chapter 10 and verse 6. Let's start there. Judges 10 and verse 6. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, serving the Baals and the Asheroth. And notice all the gods the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines. Thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. They afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year. For 18 years they afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in Gilead and the land of the Amorites. The sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was greatly distressed. Now, the location of these gods gives us, a, if you looked at it on a map, gives us a picture that they are geographically surrounded by false gods and false worship. And not only that, they have been infiltrated by false gods and by false worship. Uh, it says that they, God afflicted them. They were shattered or they were crushed. That's what that word afflicted means there. They were shattered and crushed. This is the sixth time that they've done this. 
I mean, you know, you'd think. I mean, don't you remember the first time your mother said, don't touch that stove, it's hot, and you touched it, and then you started crying, and then your mama fixed it, and you knew then the next time you saw that stove, she said, don't touch it, it's hot. You went, I'm not going to touch that stove, it's hot. Now, you wouldn't be very bright if every time your mother said, don't touch that stove, it's hot. Let me see. They've done this six times. It's like nobody at the family reunion ever said, now, kids, let me just tell you one thing. If you get away from God, you're going to be afflicted, and you're going to be crushed, and you're going to be oppressed, and you're going to go into slavery and into bondage. Don't do that. We made that mistake. Grandma and Papa made that mistake. Don't, don't do that. But they kept going back to the same things over and over again. They had gotten to the point where they were willing to worship anything but the Lord. Now, each time in the Judges, if you just take Judges and just read it through, each time, each rebellion, each forsaking goes deeper. And so it's like water going down a drain. It just goes further and further down and deeper and deeper into sin. So this is not just evil, evil, evil. This is evil, more evil, greater evil, even greater evil. They just keep going further and further away from God. They forsook the Lord. That's what the Scripture says. Now, their problem is idolatry, and idolatry is not something limited to the Old Testament. And we've talked about that a lot, but we need to always be reminded of it because here's the deal. In America, I think we've got a lot more idolatry than we admit. I mean, you're not going to drive from here home and see any Asheroth poles or idols to Baal or any altars or anything else like that. But here's where you'll see idolatry in America. You'll see it in celebrities, in politicians, in athletes, in houses, in cars, in money, in social status, in appearance, in race, in class, in technology, in sex. It's the dominant issue that faces us in America today is anything other than God. So really, we're right where they were. Because in America, it's anything other than God. We don't want to worship God. We don't want to honor God. We want to kick him to the curb. And uh, Alex and Stephen and I were talking this morning that the difference between political correctness and biblical thinking is in political correctness, what you think about, what do other people think about me? In biblical thinking, you think about what does God think about me? You see, you can't be politically correct and be biblically correct. Because when you're biblically correct, the first thought is, what does a holy God think about this? Not what does the, uh, do the opinion polls think about it, but what does a holy God think about it? And, and so, idols demand strange sacrifices from us. They demand our attention, our time, our loyalty, our allegiance. And some people for these idols will sacrifice their family or their friends or their health or their job. It may break them. It may move them to the edge of disaster. It may take them off a cliff. But the sad reality is as many experiences and examples as we have about what happens when a people turn from God, people still do it. You know why we have to talk about revival? Because we're so good at backsliding. Uh, I, I did a message probably 15 years ago out of Deuteronomy uh, called Backsliding's the Best Thing I Do. 
And, and that was the people of Israel. I mean, they would be delivered. And, you know, God get them across the Red Sea, and, and they're celebrating, and they're having, oh, man, God delivered us. The Egyptian army's dead. Where's Moses? Let's get a golden calf. And they were so quick to forget the goodness and the blessings of God so quick to go backwards in their walk. And, and when we look at them, really what we see is ourselves. Because they're a reminder that in our human nature, we don't want to really submit to the Lordship of Christ and to Christ's ruling in our hearts. Now look at the repentance in the land, Judges 10 and verse 10. Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Remember, they're afflicted, they're oppressed, they cried out to the Lord. We have sinned against you, and indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And the Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the sons of Ammon, and the Philistines? And also when the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Moanites oppressed you, you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hands. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Look at this now. This is the key in this whole thing. Therefore... I will no longer deliver you. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen and let them deliver you in the time of your distress. God says, the only time you ever come to me is when you got a problem. By the way, have you ever known Christians like that? The only time you ever come to me is when you're in a bind, when you're in a problem. You know, you, you forget. I, I can't tell you how many people in, in my years of ministry have made promises. I, I'll go to a hospital and I'll see somebody. Preacher, I'll tell you what, if I get well, I'm going to be back at church. They never come back. They make all these promises to God when they're in a bind. You know, Lord, if you get me out of this, if you deliver me from this, I'll follow you and I'll serve you. And they might for a week or two or six weeks. And then it's just back to the old routine. God said to them, you know what? I'm tired of this game. I'm tired of you thinking that I'm some bellhop that you can ring up and get me to come do whatever you want me to do. I'm not going to play this game with you anymore. You go get all these gods you've been following and see if they can help you. See if they'll hear your prayers. See if they'll intervene. See if they'll give you victory in your life. He says, I'm not going to deliver you. And the sons of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Boy, I tell you what, they told me that and I'd been God. I know what would have been good. <laughs> We'd have had a good old-fashioned whipping. <laughs> Do to us what seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. Now, here's the problem. They are regretful and they are remorseful, but they are not repentant. They have not repented. They're just in distress. They're uncomfortable. They're afflicted. They're pressed down. They're not repentant over what they've done. They're just regretful that it's gotten them into this position. Look at this verse coming up on the screen, 2 Corinthians 7, 9. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. In other words, you're not going back to it. Leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Here's the problem. Most people get defeated because when they get in a bind, they have regret that they're in that bind, but they never get to the altar and repent for what put them in that bind. 
Repentance doesn't deal with the surface issue, the symptoms. It deals with the problem. Now, I seem to be using doctor illustrations lately, but uh, a doctor can look at the symptoms, and symptoms can mimic other symptoms, but what you want is, you don't want him to just deal with the symptoms, you want him to find the problem. What they were doing is they were going to God and saying, God, I've got, you know, got a little fever. I feel a little bad. I'm, you know, and everything. Can you just write me a prescription? Well, we need to run some tests. I really don't want you to run any tests because that might be painful. You mean you're going to stick a needle? I don't like needles. I don't really like anything like that. You're not going to do that. What do you mean you're going to put me in this machine and do this check? I don't really want you to do that. You see, they, they, wanted, they just wanted to take two aspirin and call God in the morning. They didn't want to deal with the problem. So there was a lack in the people of repentance, which is why they kept falling back in to these cycles. They wanted relief, but not a restored relationship. And you can see in your notes, God had already delivered them multiple times. I mean, you talk about going the second mile, turning the other cheek, and, and giving grace. God had given them grace after grace after grace seven times. John Hunter says this, the gods they served provided opportunities for sin but there was no salvation from their hands. It is the same in our day. You see, false gods provide opportunities for sin, but they don't provide opportunities for salvation. And so this refusal drove them to deal with their sin. So look at verse uh, 16. Here's where repentance comes. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. Now, how do we know that they move from regret to repentance? There are four things. First of all, confession. Verse 15, there was confession. Secondly, admission. Verse 15, the last part. We deserve to be punished. Confession, I have sinned. We have sinned. Admission, we deserve your punishment. We deserve your judgment. Whatever we get, we've got coming to us. Removal, verse 16, they remove the idols. So they confess, they admit, they remove, and then they surrender, verse 16, the last part, to the Lord. Adam Clark said this, God grieves for the miseries to which his creatures are reduced by their own sins. I want you to think about that one for a minute. God grieves, you, you can still get this outline, Dan, leave it up for just a minute more. Uh, God grieves for the miseries to which his creatures are reduced by their own sins. When, when your children disobey God, when, when your children walk away from God, when somebody in your family grieves God, you, you know, you think that hurts me, but you see, God grieves at another level. God grieves for the miseries that we bring on ourselves by our bad choices. Because he knows what those choices are going to get us. The, the greatest explanation, the simplest explanation you'll ever hear about why God says, thou shalt and thou shalt not. When God says thou shalt, he's saying, help yourself to all the happiness I can give you. When he says, thou shalt not, he's saying, if you do this, you're going to hurt yourself. You see, God grieves at the miseries that we bring on ourselves. It's not just that we sin. He sees what the ripple effect of that sin does to us. 
And, and so look at the response needed. They repented, verse 17 of Judges chapter 10. And we, we're jumping a little bit here. Then the sons of Ammon were summoned, and they camped at Gilead. And the sons of Israel gathered together and camped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? And he shall become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now drop to chapter 11 and verse 1. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot, and Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Now, when we get to Jephthah, we're talking about a man that nobody would have chosen. Here's a man who is rejected by his family. His brothers reject him. If you read the whole background story here, which we won't take time to do, his brothers have rejected him. His family has rejected him. He's an illegitimate child. He's a reject. He's a social outcast. He, in many ways, he's a man that nobody wanted. I mean, nobody wants to touch this guy. And, and he's up and moved. And, but here's, here's what I think Jephthah is in for. One of the reasons he's in the Bible is that no man should be hindered by his past. Amen. That God is not hindered by a man's past. Now, he, he points out, here's a man who is a son of a harlot. Now, imagine how people talked about him in the land. But God chooses him and raises him up to be a judge. Left himself, he probably would have just let everybody kick him to the curb all of his life. But he didn't do that. He was a mighty warrior, it says. He was a valiant warrior. Look at verse 3. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah. Man, how'd you like to run with that gang? What's the name of your gang, man? Worthless fellows. We got WF on the side of our neck, worthless fellows. I mean, what, it, what this is saying is the people that nobody else wanted <laughs> gathered to a guy that nobody wanted. This is a little different than David and his mighty men. So these worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. And it came about after a while that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. When the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah from the land of Tob and said to Jephthah, come and be our chief that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. Then Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, uh, didn't you hate me and drive me out from my father's house? And why have you come to me in time when you're in trouble? And the elders of Gilead said, for this reason, we have now returned to you that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. I guess he was a pretty valiant warrior. Can you imagine the city council showing up at his house? Uh, you wouldn't mind. We're just a bunch of cowards. You wouldn't mind coming and fighting some battles for us, would you? Hey, Mr. So-and-so, aren't you the guy that told me I was a loser? Aren't you the guy that told me I was a nobody? Aren't you the guy that kept calling, calling me the son of a harlot? Aren't you? Now, you're the one, you're the one that, that started that rumor about me. You're the, yeah, yeah, I remember you guys right there. Why are you coming to me? Apparently, in the unspoken part of this, 
Jephthah's proven himself a mighty good leader because he's taking these worthless men and moved them into some kind of fighting force. And the elders said to Jephthah, for this reason, we've now returned to you that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon and become head over us. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon and the Lord gives them to me, will I become your head? Now just stop right there. He says, all right, so you brought me here to do your dirty work. So when I get through doing your dirty work for you, are you going to kick me back out of town? Tell me I can't come anymore? You're just using me? He's testing them. Are you just using me because you know I'm a good fighter and you guys aren't? You guys are a bunch of wimps and you're coming to me to get my men to come fight for you and lead you into this battle? Are you going to make me head? The Lord gives them to me, will I become your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord is witness between us, surely we will do as you have said. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mitzvah. Shakespeare said it this way, some men are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. Here's what seems to be implied in the text, that just like Moses and David and Elijah and Paul, God has taught Jephthah something about himself in the wilderness. He's learned something. He's quit living in bondage to his past and to all the things that people have said about him. He's quit dragging that around, and he's become a legitimate leader. Here are some lessons that I believe he learned. First of all, I believe he learned military strategy. Uh, obviously, he had these worthless fellows. They weren't worthless at this point. They'd become very valuable for the deliverance of Israel. So he had learned military strategy. Secondly, he had learned leadership. Somehow he had taken a ragtag group of worthless fellows and turned them into a fighting force. Kind of always reminds me of the movie The Dirty Dozen. Remember when they go get all those guys out of prison? You know, and they're going to go attack this German uh, fortress and they're going to get all this stuff. You know, and they're just a ragtag. I mean, all these guys are set up for the death penalty, and Lee Marvin comes out and he makes them into something. I don't know how Ernest Borgnine did that. Every time I saw Ernest Borgnine in that movie, I thought, he's McHale. <laughs> he's always conniving. But, you know, it, it, it's, it's this ragtag group that he has begun to lead. But then I think he got to know God. I think he got to know God. Verse, uh, verse 9, the Lord gives them up to me. He's not standing there saying, look what I've made of myself. He says, if the Lord gives them up to me, in verse 11, he spoke all these words before the Lord at Mizpah. Now, I love this quote by Gary Enrich. My responsibility in the Christian life is to be involved where I am in doing the will of God where he has put me, to learn the lessons he, has, he is teaching me. It is God's job to open doors of opportunity. What Henry is saying is, you just be faithful where you are and God will decide what you get to do. 
You, you don't run ahead of him. You don't fall behind him. You just stay faithful. Learn the lessons that you're supposed to learn and let God do the rest. Now, if you read this story, we're not going to take because this is a long section of Scripture. You will find that he tries to negotiate with him. He tries diplomacy. Uh, he, and it's in your notes. He argued that Israel had not taken the land, but the king of the Ammonites in the battle, it was the Lord's land. He argued that since Jehovah gave his people the land in question, they had the right to possess it. Jephthah is trying diplomacy. He argued on the basis of political precedent. He argued the statue of limitations. I mean, Israel's had the land for 300 years. I mean, your time ran out, boys, but they didn't listen. So in verse 27, Jephthah says, I therefore have not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong by making war against me. May the Lord, the judge, judge today between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. But the kings of the sons of Ammon disregarded the message which Jephthah sent him. So here's Jephthah. He's not arguing possibilities and probabilities. He's standing on facts. Verse 29, God steps in. Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Verse 32, so Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. I wish it ended there, but Jephthah makes a ridiculous vow in verse 30. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, and everything in history said that God would, if you will give them into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Verse 34, when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing, and now she was his one and only child. Beside her, he had no son or daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. So she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said. Rash vow. A ridiculous vow. God didn't require that of him. He, he, he's almost acting as if God is a sadist that needs some kind of thing to appease him. This is the consequence of six cycles of downward spiral to where they have been engulfed, embraced, and infiltrated by all these false gods. There's an ignorance now of the Word of God and how God operates. There's an understanding on the surface of God, but not the depth of how God does his business. And so here's what you have. Zeal without knowledge will lead to fanaticism, which will destroy all it touches. There's a danger of a rash vow. It can become fanaticism and will destroy all it touches. Here's a man who had a godly daughter. And while God used him as a judge and as a deliverer, his rash vow led to the death of his only child. 
he tries to strike a bargain with God. In verses 29 through 40, he's trying to cut a deal that God would help him. And this vow was a vow of a human sacrifice. First of all, God doesn't require human sacrifice. There's only one that God's required, and that was his only son. But he offers a human sacrifice. Now, why do we know it was a human sacrifice? Because he says that the first thing that comes out the doors of my house, well, there are no oxen and bulls inside the doors of his house. I don't know, maybe you have one, but most of those stay outside. He's very specific. He says, whatever comes out the door of my house. Now, there can't be that much inside of his house. He's got a wife and a daughter and maybe some maidservants, but there can't be a whole lot inside his house. So he's making an offer of a human sacrifice. Animals were not kept indoors. It's the opposite of the custom, which he would have been biblically correct to say, I will offer a bull or a lamb in praise to you if you deliver me. A burnt offering was always required, a blood sacrifice. So here's a contradiction of the Word of God. Jephthah knew something about God. The Spirit of God was upon him. But here's where the ignorance of the Word of God and the nature of God causes a man to make a rash vow. Now, here's something. It's not going to come up on the screen. I just want you to write it down because I think it's important. What you believe about God is the most important fact in your life. What you believe about God is the most important fact in your life. If you believe that God is a God of hatred and vengeance, you're going to have a certain worldview. If you believe that God is a God of love and grace, you're going to have a different worldview. If you believe that God will not forgive you, you're going to have a certain view of your life and the consequences of your life. If you believe that God is a God of forgiveness and mercy, then that's going to affect the way you view life. What you believe about God affects your view of life. So what do we learn about them? Well, I mean, here's a guy listed in Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Fame of Faith. I mean, he's not just written out of the book. He's right next to David and Samuel. He's left his mark. Just a thought. Before we get really hard on Jephthah, and this was a bad decision and one he would live with for the rest of his life. Does it ever amaze you how many imperfect people God has actually used? And how many people that have made rash vows to God that he's used anyway? God knowing the beginning from the end. God knowing everything in the middle, that God uses imperfect people. Maybe he's trying to hedge his bets. Maybe he's trying to, to, to prove his sincerity. We don't really know, but I know this. Never gamble your future or your children's future on an immediate decision. You better think about it and pray about it. Before you make some promise to God, I'll do whatever you want, you better think and pray about what that means. Because Ecclesiastes, I think it's chapter 5 and verse 4, Ecclesiastes says, don't make a vow rashly, but if you make a vow, you're expected to keep it. So before we make grand promises to God, we better think through what those grand promises mean and the consequences of those promises. So here's what's important. 
What's important is that you and I be people of the Word and people of prayer so that when we say things to God or about God, they're consistent with what the Word of God says. They're not just something that in the flash of the moment and in the heat of the battle, we come up and say something about God. That's Jephthah's mistake. But the thing that I appreciate about Jephthah, although he made a rash and foolish vow, is here's a man who did not let what people said about him when he was growing up, when he got kicked out of his town, when he was a loser, an illegitimate child, all these things that were a part of his life, he didn't let that define his life. He's a person that shows what God can do with anybody that's available to him. Not a perfect man. None of the judges are perfect. We think Jephthah's bad. Wait until these next two messages on Samson. <laughs> There's a guy that made some bad decisions. By the way, be careful who you date. <laughs> you may get a haircut one night. <laughs> All right, I want us to sing, Mark, and uh, I don't know what we're going to sing, but I'm sure we're going to sing something. So while we're singing, we've got some folks that we're going to present and uh, they're going to come, and we're going to present them. We're going to get to greet them in just a few moments. Uh, let me remind you that uh, we've got great opportunities to serve in the coming weeks and getting ready for Candy Fest and reaching out to our community and being a light in dark places. Uh, thank you for praying for this morning, uh, for the message this morning. That was some tough ground to plow through. But I appreciate you not only listening, but the way you listened and uh, I pray that it will bear some good fruit in what we did. So I want us to stand. I want us to pray. And then we're going to sing. And as we're singing, these are going to come, and we're going to present them in just a moment. All right? Father, we bless your name for your word. Lord, we are not ignorant of your word. We hold in our hands the word of God, 66 books, divinely inspired, inerrant, infallible, that have given us clear direction as to who you are and what you're about. It's a book that's a story about your love for us and your desire for an intimate relationship with us, that there would be a oneness with our heart in your heart, that there would be a willing obedience on our part, that there would be willing worship that would come from our lips, that there would be a consistent walk in our lives. And so, Father, I, I thank you for the lessons we're learning from very difficult passages in the Old Testament when it's hard for us to see how they could have been so blessed and made so many bad decisions. And yet, Lord, when we're honest, we are so blessed and we often make bad decisions. So, Lord, help us to hear and to heed your word and to listen carefully to what you say to us so that we don't make foolish decisions. We don't make unwise decisions. Lord, you've given us a whole book of Proverbs on the difference between foolish thinking and wise thinking. So, Lord, help us to be wise, to think biblically in how we respond to the issues of life. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together.